Welcome to the Wine Camp podcast, where we look deeply into regenerative organic and Demeter biodynamic certified wine growing and farming. My name is Craig Camp, and I am the general manager of Trun Vineyard and author of the Wine Camp blog at craigcamp.com, where I am chronicling our regenerative mission at Trun. This is meant to be a podcast for those that aspire to, as the Regenerative Organic Alliance says, farm like the world depends on it. These interviews will be focused on our work here at Truen Vineyard in Oregon's Applegate Valley, but will also include the work of other farmers committed to regenerative agriculture. And now for today's interview. Hello and welcome to Truen Talk, where we dig deeply into biodynamic and regenerative organic agriculture and wine growing. Uh, today we're talking to winemaker Nate Wall, who joined Truen in 2018 and has since revolutionized our winemaking. Today we're going to be talking about native yeast fermentations, which are a basic part of his winemaking philosophy, uh, and we'll probably also uh, discuss at some point the term natural wines, which is <laughs> not his favorite. Uh, he just prefers to describe his style as minimalist winemaking. So welcome, Nate, and could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Troon before we get started on native yeast? Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, Craig. Um, so this is one of my favorite topics. I loved, you know, we, we joke that it's always a good day when you can use the word microbes as often as possible. So um, that's going to happen a lot today, so um, it'll be a good day. Um, my particular interest in microbes is because um, my background initially was in molecular microbiology. So um, in undergrad, I was, I, I kind of spent my undergrad looking at how different microbes uh, altered the environment, um, doing some research into a, a lot of the, this is, you know, at the time we were just starting to get the tools of, of looking at environmental, um, of microbes out in the environment. Um, a, a lot of these things aren't culturable in a lab, so it was very difficult to study what was going on in a complex, you know, environmental system, and we were just starting to get some of the scientific tools to, to, to do that. And uh, what we were finding early on there is a lot of what we thought of as physical processes, um, like kind of chemical processes, were actually all being biologically mediated by these uh, bacteria and, and uh, microscopic fungi that were out in the in the environment, and so we thought of these processes as purely chemical, like some of the weathering reactions in rocks. Or I was actually looking at some calcification um, in a certain type of plant, uh, where so basically this plant forms a, a calcium carbonate, almost like a shell, like similar to some marine organisms, but. Um, you know, we people were initially trying to figure out how the plant would do this because that's not something plants typically have the ability to do. And it turned out it wasn't the plant; it was these um, these microbes uh, living on the surface of the plant. Like this biofilm coating the plant was, in fact, um, what was creating these uh, calcified layers um, of the plant, which the plant needed. It was this beautiful symbiotic relationship between the plant and the um, and these microbes that were calcifying it. Very similar to how we're finding all these cool relationships with plants and the mycorrhizal fungi and different um, bacteria and fungal communities that take uh, have these symbiotic relationships with the roots of plants, things like that. So, so that was some of the stuff I was looking at um, early on. Um, 
and and so when I went to grad school, I, I really liked studying things in the environment and seeing what was happening. But then in grad school, I, I did environmental engineering. And so this is how can we um, look at ways of making those microbes in the environment do stuff that we want them to do. Uh, so looking at, you know, if you have polluted areas that need cleanup, there's often ways that's called in situ bioremediation, different ways, different levers you can try to uh, pull and and exert some control over what microbial communities are present in a certain area, and you might you can convince them to start degrading um, toxic compounds and making benign substances from it. So, be that in um, contaminated underground uh, drinking water aquifers, or it could be above ground like stormwater or other uh, you know polluted runoff or things like that. You can um, you can use microbes to create these, these reactions in nature that you want to see. Um, initially, we were looking at stormwater treatment wetlands, for example, and the plant communities that you grow in those wetlands are important, but it turns out what's almost the most important thing is um, having all of these emergent vegetation, all of these plants growing in the water to have a place that can get colonized by bacteria. Um, so it's these biofilms that are doing a lot of the treatment, um, doing a lot of the, the cleaning up work. Um, so it all comes down to microbes. And so that's kind of how I always had this focus on the power of the, of the unseen. Um, and then when I later, uh, my grad school is actually in UC Berkeley. So I was right near Napa Sonoma wine country and had started uh, kind of dabbling in, in wine at the time. Took me some, some years later to, to fully uh, commit and, and making a career shift away from environmental engineering, but um, that the power of microbes always stuck with me. And so you know, now, uh, looking at these, these native yeasts and these kind of spontaneous fermentations and all the complexity inherent in a more natural um, system, even in a winery, is what's been really interesting for me. Well, you've worked now through the Willamette Valley and uh, now Southern Oregon, and during that time, you've worked both with cultured and uh, indigenous or native yeast. Can you compare and contrast uh, those experiences? Yeah, so I think it starts with a pretty big philosophical divide um, between, on the one hand, with the cultured yeast, you're trying to create um, a situation where there's a lot of, where the winemaker has a lot of control, and the winemaker has the ability to exert, you know, a solid like, winemaking style onto a wine. And so, in in some brands and some types of wine, uh, that consistency is important, not just from vintage to vintage, but also from product to product. There's like uh, a thumbprint of a winemaking style on that wine, and people can get to know that that style. And some people look for that style, and so that's you know why you would use the cultured yeast. I mean, it, it allows you to have that control, and it allows you to create this consistent flavor profiles, even even throughout wildly varying vintages. Um, it basically has this moderating effect. So first, you kind of start off with this philosophical divide between the two approaches. Um, with using cultured yeast, <clears throat> there's this concept of being able to exert 
a lot more control. The winemaker can exert a lot more control in the cellar, and then which would also allow a controlled style or like a winemaking style to be present in wines. And so that, you know, the use of those commercial yeasts have this moderating effect where it kind of always wants to push the wine to like the center, right? Like um, regardless of vintage variation or anything going else, uh, anything else going on with those grapes, uh, the, the use of those commercial yeasts will kind of always steer the wine, the wine into that, the center of the lane. Um, and if you are building a brand based on consistency, not just of the same wine from vintage to vintage, but also across your entire portfolio where this like signature or thumbprint of a winemaking style is important, um, that's, that's why you might choose to use uh, the cultured yeast. I can tell you, you also sleep a lot better at night using cultured yeast because, again, you have so much more control over so much more of what is inherently a pretty chaotic process. And um, that is one, one way of trying to have some semblance of, of control over, over some biology there. But um, with, with the, the native yeast, and that's so philosophically, if you go that route, what you're doing is just embracing this fundamentally chaotic and, and more complex natural system that is a spontaneous ferment. Um, so this allows for the vintage variation. It allows for an expression of terroir, which we'll talk about, um, I'm sure. But then you end up ceding a large amount of control away from yourself as the winemaker um, and basically giving that control to this complex soup of, of microbes that are present in your wine. So I guess f first off, it's, that, it's, it's really that understanding of control in the cellar and the role of the winemaker uh, in the process of making wine. Um, so I guess something interesting is that most commercial yeast strains are are strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the is the yeast right there there are there are also some that are Saccharomyces baianus um, which is same genus different species of yeast uh, closely related and sometimes there are hybrids of the two um, cerevisiae baianus cross uh, but the vast majority of the commercial yeasts are Saccharomyces cerevisiae and like I like to say that commercial yeast strains are like breeds of dogs right so. Just, just like Canis familiaris, you know, your, your local pet dog, um, that would be the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But even within Canis familiaris, you have Chihuahuas and you have Great Pyrenees, right? So uh, these, these yeasts, just like dogs, are bred for different purposes, um, and they generally do one thing, like, really, really well. So, you know, our, our, guard, our guardian dog, uh, Great Pyrenees, are just really good at protecting our sheep and our chickens out there. They do a great job of, of what they were bred to do, and they just do that um, fundamentally. Whereas a chihuahua is just going to sit on your lap or maybe bite your fingers, whatever chihuahuas do. Um, but, you know, really, really different animal, um, yet they are identical species. Um, and so, uh, you know, you've, you've got that going on. I guess the Saccharomyces baianus would be like Canis lupus in this example. They're, you know, a wolf closely related, um, but... Uh, but slightly more wild. Um, but again, though, these things do one thing really well. And, 
And so for that consistency and, and for that um, assuredness of what's going to happen, that's why the commercial yeasts are beneficial. But if you're looking for depth and complexity and um, kind of trying to avoid this like one-hit wonder mentality of commercial yeast, then you need to look into more complex microbial situations, which is what you get when you use um, native, native ferments and embrace all of the microbiology that's coming in uh, on those grapes from the vineyard. Well, that leads us right to Troon and, and the choices you've made here to use native yeast. What really led you down that, that path? Yeah, well, first off, I, I guess the first thing to, to note is that any wine that has a biodynamic wine uh, designation, so there are actually two biodynamic designations for wine in the United States. There's biodynamic wine, which is the highest tier of, of biodynamic wine, and then there's also made with biodynamic grapes. Um, all biodynamic wine is required to be fermented solely with indigenous or native or spontaneous. These terms are kind of used interchangeably, but um, non-inoculated ferments. So if you are striving to have a wine that's ultimately labeled as a biodynamic wine, um, that is a hurdle that all of those wines must, must go over, is that they, the requirement is they must be fermented with the indigenous um, yeast from that area. And the reason Demeter, uh, the agency behind biodynamic certification, the reason Demeter requires that is also the same reason I am interested in using spontaneous fermentations, and that is um, biodynamics is sometimes seen as a, a lens that helps to focus terroir or that sense of place in a wine. And it is that sense of place, that uniqueness, that makes wines, I mean, gives them a, a, a voice, gives them something to say, um, and, and that is what you get from these spontaneous ferments. You're using um, everything from your site, including, you know, not just the grapes that are grown there, and, uh, or I like using stems, for example, including stems or, or quote, whole cluster in the fermentations. So that's using more uh, components of the vine, but using the microbes that came from your soil, from your vines, um, from, that are, is indigenous to your farm, um, that is very important in giving, of like leading to that that sense of place in the final wine. Uh, what we're starting to learn with some of these microbial studies that look at differences across vineyards and um, looking at the the vineyard microbiota, and then taking that into the cellar and looking at how what you have in the vineyard may influence what's in the cellar. Um, we're finding that a lot of what we think of as terroir, which had often been spoken about in more in terms of geology and soil, uh, appears to be largely microbial, kind of going back to how I started talking about how a lot of what we sometimes think of as geological or, or chemical in nature is ultimately biologically mediated. It's, also, it's ultimately, there's bacteria, there's microbes involved. Um, a lot of what we're finding about this whole sense of uniqueness in wine is that it's probably coming from the microbes. And yeah, you're going to have different microbial communities that live in different soil types and different climates. Um, 
So yeah, you, it is related to, to soil and geology and climate, but the thing that's probably making that thumbprint of, hey, why do wines from the same region taste similar? It's probably coming down to microbes. Um, so with biodynamics, you have this concept of a, a whole farm as an ecosystem, right? And it's, uh, it's this farm organism and so if you're making wine from a biodynamic vineyard, you really want to express that entirety of that farm organism in those wines. Like you want to be able to taste this farm as opposed to the next farm. And so the, the use of spontaneous fermentations to include all of that native microbiota, which is probably the, the carrier of terroir, of the sense of uniqueness, is just really, really important. And that's why we... You know, we've, we've done native ferments on all of our wines here, and um, we'll, we'll kind of never look back. That's just such an important component of, of making wines that are truly unique. Now, you've touched on some of these things, but as, as a winemaker, what do you see as the, the greatest challenges and the greatest advantages of native ferments? <laughs> yeah, so the challenges are many and varied. Um, Going back to what I was speaking about in terms of seeding control, I mean, you, in any given lot that comes in from the vineyard, you don't really know what's present there. Um, short of doing like shotgun DNA sequencing of every single lot you bring into the cellar, it's difficult to know uh, just how complex uh, that microbiota, that uh, microbiome, is that's uh, in your must, um, your kind of pre-fermentation juice. Uh, you don't really know what's there, and it's hard to know what is going to start dominating when. Um, so tradition, well, I shouldn't maybe say traditional, I guess what has become traditional in the last 50, 80 years is for when, uh, when grapes come into the winery, you add a lot of sulfur, sulfur dioxide which basically uh, sterilizes the juice. So anything that came in uh, after this addition of, of SO2, uh, pretty much just, just dead. Um, so now you, you just have you know, sugar water in the juice, but nothing alive in there. And that's why you can, you can wait then for a little while um, and then inoculate with your chosen yeast so that 99.99% of all living things in that wine is that you know, clones of that one microorganism that you've added there. Whereas in, a, like, if you do not use sulfur at crush, like we do not, we do not add any sulfur until before bottling, um, you have the entire microbial community intact. So we're finding the diversity here to be pretty astounding. Um, the, the more you start scratching at something, the more layers are revealed. And there are multiple, like, family, well, first of all, there's entire kingdoms, right? I mean, you've got yeast, which are fungal kingdoms versus bacteria, um, uh, you know, and, and then just digging down from there in the complexity of life, you've, you've got entire families, not, to say nothing of the number of genus and species of different things going on. You have, you know, multiple groups of um, very dissimilar uh, microorganisms that are all in the same place. They're, they're all able to communicate in some ways. Like, um, we're starting to find that the presence or absence of different microorganisms can affect the functioning of others. 
So the first thing we do in science, if we want to learn something, is we just study it in a complete exclusion of, of everything else, right? Oh, what does this bacteria do? Well, let's put it um, all by itself in this growth media and then look at what it does. And that is a good starting point, but it in no way um, approximates the complexity uh, out in nature. And so what we're trying to look at now is, and, and is so what does this do in the presence or absence of, say, this group? Um, and what does it do without this other group? Or what happens if we have three or four or five or six different groups together? How does that change the metabolism or the gene expression or, of, of different things? And so what we're finding is that these complex groups of microbes interact very uh, and, and react very differently than any of them do in isolation. So it's having this um, entire soup of, of microbiology um, which leads to those fascinating results in the wine, but is also pretty difficult to, to understand, especially the, you know, the, the tools continue to become more accessible, and I'm sure maybe 10 years from now we'll just be able to take a drop of our incoming juice, plop it on um, some machine in our lab, and it'll just spit out like this really cool graph of all the different things we have there, and we might start learning some techniques of nudging things one way or another to encourage some of the, the bacteria and, and, and Saccharomyces or non-Saccharomyces yeast that we find to be really interesting in, in our native ferments. But for now, it's, it's still a little bit of a black box. And for us, then, the, the biggest question is the potential for spoilage, um, which is why so many people do just kind of carpet bomb with uh, sulfur on the way in because, hey, you know, we're killing off all sorts of good stuff, but we're going to kill off the bad stuff too. So for us, there's two thoughts of this. One is that we have a, a balanced microbiota going on in our vineyards. Like everything we're doing with our regenerative organic farming, our biodynamic preparations, what we are encouraging are healthy and diverse populations, not just above ground biodiversity, um, of plants and macroorganisms, but also diversity below ground in the soil and in all of the microbiology that's coding, you know, all living things. We're all, I think people have found out how fascinating it is that we're, you know, 80% microbe and only 20% human. I mean, that's like kind of, kind of really shifts your thinking on the importance of microbes out there. That's the same thing in the vineyard, like all of the microbes present on the vines in the vineyard, um, that's just adding to, to this resiliency and, and this uh, uh, healthiness, right, of, of what we have present when the juice comes in. So knowing that we come from this place of health and strength in the vineyard, that allows us to be a little less concerned about the potential for spoilage because we trust that there is less spoilage present. Uh, in the same way that you think about tillage, for example, or undivine spraying. When you, when you look at some of these immaculate vineyards where it's just, you know, vines coming out of bare earth, like there's, there's not a blade of grass in the vineyard, it's just these vines coming out of, you know, perfectly manicured bare dirt. Um, if anything is going to grow in that situation, I can guarantee you it's going to be a weed, right? That is not a healthy situation. Um, you've killed off any possible balance um, that that 
you know, ecosystem could have of, of creating a, a healthy community in that location. And generally things that colonize voids are undesirable from the human perspective. So if you have a, a void space like bare, bare dirt, generally what colonizes that the most quickly is, is a weed species. Well, in the same way, if you have void spaces, microbiologically speaking, in, in a wine or in an incoming juice, probably what's gonna colonize that is the, the weeds of the microbes, which for us would be spoilage bacteria. Um, if that's not the case though, if you have all of this diversity in place, it's likely that you're, you're gonna avoid, there's no space for those weeds to come in. So inherently trusting in the microbiology we bring in from the vineyard can really help with that. Um, another big thing for us though is to address that challenge is the, the one thing we, we do add to our fermentation is dry ice. Um, and so the use of CO2 is I think a critical component in making um, so-called like clean natural wines um, in that we really need to, um, to provide that carbon dioxide in advance of when the fermentation will start doing it itself. So um, it's those first five to six, seven days well, for us, it's a, quote, ambient soak. We, uh, we don't do a cold soak, per se, but uh, we harvest grapes in the early mornings. It's quite cold here. The grapes come in nice and cool. Um, as we process those, um, either destem them or, or add some whole clusters, you know, sort them into the fermentation vessels, uh, we add dry ice as we're filling up that fermentation vessel. And the dry ice is basically excluding a lot of the oxygen in there, uh, and most of the spoilage microorganisms that can be found in wine are aerobic, so they need air uh, to exist. And if you can, um, just every day we just sprinkle a couple, a couple cubes of dry ice on the top of those ferments, keep them, um, keep them sealed up in their fermentation vessel until we start noticing a healthy fermentation starting to go. Uh, that, that fermentation is not only uh, converting the sugar in the grapes into, into alcohol, but it is also releasing heat. It's starting to warm itself up and it's releasing a bunch of carbon dioxide. And so as that fermentation gets going, it will start producing its own dry ice. I mean, CO2. It, so it'll be self-protective from that point onward, but it's getting to that point is where we supplement the dry ice that, or with, with dry ice, um, to provide that CO2 blanket to prevent the oxygen exposure to that, that upper layer of grapes in the ferment and to try to minimize the potential for these aerobic spoilage organisms to, to get a foothold. And then trusting that the rest of the microbiology, since it's intact, is going to be self-protective, it's going to be a healthy community, a balanced microbial community, and that we can then let that progress through that spontaneous fermentation um, without as much worry. Now the pumice from these natural ferments are going into our compost and then being uh, spread out through the vineyard every year. How do you feel that's affecting the microbiome and what changes have you been seeing in the ferments over the vintages you've been here? Yeah, so I think, you know, at the heart of biodynamics is the compost and with with our farm, it, it literally is is kind of in the middle of our farm. It's the you know the heartbeat of of the farm in many ways, and the ability to take 
our winery waste, um, all, all of the stems and skin, skins and uh, seeds, everything left over from both the fermentations, the red and orange wine fermentations, where you're fermenting on the skins, um, but as well as the, the, the whites and rosés uh, when we press them off um, for, uh, for juice, and then we have those skins um, also go to the compost pad. But in particular, though, it's those skins from the red wines and the orange wines that have gone through fermentation. What that means is those skins are just coated in all of the, of the, the yeasts um, and, and other organisms that successfully completed the, the, the fermentations that year, right? So, um, you know, billions and billions and trillions of microorganisms are present during any single fermentation. And after we press the wine off, um, after it's done fermenting, we press the wine off, those skins are just infused with, with that uh, successful colony of, of bacteria and, and yeast, um, mostly Saccharomyces cerevisiae at that point, but there can be other, um, other non-Saccharomyces yeasts, uh, notably Meshnikovia, um, um, a couple others that can make it significantly far into the fermentation process before the amount of, generally it's, it's the rising alcohol um, that is what kills off a lot of the um, non-Saccharomyces species, but some of them can get quite far, um, nine or even 10% um, uh, alcohol before they really start to fade. And a lot of our, a lot of our wines here uh, in this you know, cooler, uh, warm climate, I guess, or we're either a warm, cool climate or a cool, warm climate here in the Applegate. Uh, we don't have super high alcohols, so um, these, these non-Saccharomyces species can get pretty deep into the fermentation process um, before getting dominated by Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So all of those things then are present on these skins, and as we add them to our compost pile, we, importantly, we make biodynamic compost. We don't make I guess, regular compost, and there's a pretty large difference between those two. With regular compost, the goal is to achieve pretty high temperatures um, with a lot of aeration, which is done by turning the compost pile five times within 15 days, uh, achieving these higher temperatures, which are meant to basically cook the pile. It's meant to kill off pathogenic um, bacteria and really um, most bacteria um, in fungal communities. It's, it's meant to kind of sterilize the pile a bit. Um, and so then 15 days later, after you've reached these high temperatures, you can apply that compost um, directly to, to the plants and you could harvest things the next day. It's, um, it's considered, quote, safe at that point. Um, our biodynamic compost is completely different. Um, for one thing, we don't turn it um, as often. We don't get these really high temperatures. It does get nice and warm. There is this uh, uh, thermophilic, um, this heat-loving uh, aspect where the piles do warm up, um, and that is where you get a lot of the decomposition. But it warms to uh, 120, 130 degrees, which is warm enough to accelerate those biological reactions, but not necessarily warm enough to kill them. And so what you're doing then is you're basically creating this biological reactor where you're growing all sorts of cool, um, certainly uh, soil of uh, bacteria and, and fungal community and mycorrhizal fungi and um, kind of growing those up, not killing them, but 
the same thing is true of the, the yeasts and, and things coming from the vineyard back into those piles. So you've created this biological reactor, which is, um, if anything, maybe amplifying what was there, and now you're spreading that out um, in the fall. We spread that out across the entire vineyard. So we are, in essence, every year, re-inoculating the vineyard with what successfully fermented last year's wine. So one can just imagine that as you, it's, it's the whole concept of biodynamics too is these repeated applications, you know, year after year. Um, any one thing that you do may not make a huge difference, but it's the rhythm of it and it's the, the cycles and just that additive nature of year after year, you're adding back this complex microbial community um, that came from all over the farm, but also from the winery. And so one could presume then that some of that is going to survive so that next year, uh, some, of, some of that community that successfully fermented last year's wine is going to just take off that much faster, right? And it's going to be more present than it was the year prior. And, and each year that you keep doing that, it, uh, it keeps adapting and changing perhaps. I mean, different years definitely do have different fermentations. You note differences in the spontaneous ferments. In 2022, I saw something that I hadn't seen for, um, for years, for um, seven or eight years, but there is a, a, a yeast that dominates sometimes in spontaneous ferments in Oregon that we call the pink foaming monster. And uh, for very obvious reasons, it is an incredibly active yeast. Um, and it creates this copious amounts of foam that if you if you filled your fermentation vessel a little too full, like it's just gonna there's just gonna be foam everywhere. It's gonna overflow the the tank, overflow the bin, um, because this is just what it does. Um, you know we don't add it like uh, you know it's uh, but it's very consistent. And I've seen it before with other native fermentations from Willamette Valley um, at, at different years. I you know I, I can't put a finger on what was similar from one vintage of pink foaming monster to another, but clearly there are some environmental factors which select for certain yeasts or, or certain um, types of microbial communities some years over others. And so we do see that. And so I guess what's nice then going back to the compost is that we're also adding that diversity year after year, you know, you may have different um, kind of assemblages of these bacterial and, and microbial communities that that do the fermentations each year, but uh, you're, you're putting that out in the vineyard so that they're available should the vintage call for it, right? So depending on whichever conditions may make one group of organisms more successful in a given year, you're, you're, giving, you're giving nature that option. You're, you're, you're re-inoculating the vineyard each year, um, and so hopefully... Uh, just just like the biodynamic farming where diversity is key, microbially it's the same way. You're providing that diversity out in the vineyard so that as the grapes come in, you know, na nature gets to select. You know, I, I've joked that I don't necessarily make the wines I want to make. I make the wines that this property, the site wants to make. And that is part of it, is letting the those those individual lots of grapes as they come in, you know, they basically choose what they need. You know, I, 
I don't know what, we, what they need. It's, we say the same thing about the vines. Like, the vine knows how to make grapes way better than we do. Like, so we need to, in biodynamic farming, we try to set the situations such that that vine has the best environment, everything it needs, so that it can do best what it knows how to do, which is make grapes. The, similarly, with a, a spontaneous ferment, Let's set up, you know, those microbes know what they want to do. They, they want to eat that sugar. Um, luckily for us, they turn it into ethanol, into these amazing flavor and aroma compounds that we just find endlessly fascinating in the wine. Um, but they know what they want to do, so we just need to set up these conditions where they have kind of the, the best possibility of choosing the best path for them. And so that's, that's, what, we, that's what we do with, uh, with a more minimal intervention cellar. So you've been making biodynamic wine since 2018 now. How have those experiences influenced your winemaking philosophy and vintage? And what, what does it mean to you personally to be able to make wine in this way? Yeah, so I think making wine, biodynamic wine, um, I, I personally find very fulfilling because it does have a unique voice that does carry through vintage after vintage, you can taste that, that sense of place, that terroir. I mean, we've talked about how, why do many winemakers go into biodynamics in the first place? And it's often because they've tasted a bottle of wine and just been like, wow, like what is going on here? Um, they spin the bottle around, see what they can find out about it, and they're like, oh, Demeter, you know, this is a biodynamic wine. And then it happens again. You spin that bottle around, it's like, oh, yep, that's Demeter again. This is, there's something to biodynamic wine that's just inherently special, unique. It makes you sit back and you're like, I want to know more about this wine. This wine has a story, and it is telling it to me in the glass, and I want to know more about that wine. Um, that's what biodynamics can do in wine and after making biodynamic wine now for you know several years here at Troon we we get to see that story play out and so it's endlessly fascinating each year seeing um, the similarities and the differences that you get from making wine in this way but at the end of the day it always comes down to a very unique expression of some aspect of our property and that's why I'm really excited, actually, as we go forward into this new era of Troon, where we're starting to get a lot more grape varieties that we have planted, um, either the same varieties in different parts of our, of our property, uh, different soil types. We'll get to see how all of those express themselves differently um, based on these, all of these factors we've been talking about. Uh, how are these wines like what wines do they want to be? And how are they going to be different than, you know, Syrah from the northwest corner of our property? How is that going to be different than Syrah from the southeast corner of our property or, or vice versa? Like, um, how do these vines that are growing, you know, in, in some cases just hundreds of feet apart, possibly in different soil types, uh, how do they express themselves differently? And it's that uniqueness, um, allowing the wine to, to find their own voice. Um, 
you know, much like a, a writer, an author needs to find their own voice to be able to tell their story, we want the wines to find their voice, to tell their story. And that's what I have found with biodynamics is you are, you are providing that opportunity for the wine. And that is why, you know, that's why when you, you taste these biodynamic wines, which also are just humming with vitality, you know, that's, uh, there's something common in almost all biodynamic wines that you take a sip of it and it's alive. You know, it's, it's even after bottling it and, and so we also don't fine or filter. So not only are we not, you know, removing, we're not sulfuring um, at crush to remove that um, complexity of the microorganisms present from the vineyard, we're also not fining and filtering them out on the tail end. So that wine is still alive in the bottle and it will, you know, grow and change. But when you, when you taste these biodynamic wines, the similarity is that they all just have an electric vitality to them. And so that is something that really harkens back to the, the philosophy of biodynamics of energizing your soils, energizing your vines. It energizes those final proje- uh, products as well, in, in this case, wine. And so I find that aspect to be so fascinating when you have such uniqueness expressed in a bottle versus something that, um, you know, a more of a grocery store type wine that is very consistent year after year. But as you start, you know, tasting them side by side with these biodynamic wines that are just so unique and expressive, uh, you just, you feel the difference between a living, a living wine and a dead one. Um, And so, yeah. Just, just to finish up here, uh, I mean, your 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 academic background was in science. Uh, uh, your first career was science based. Uh, we've been talking about microbiology for the last uh, <laughs> half an hour plus. Microbiology and science don't often come up uh, when you see people write about biodynamics, but I think you look at it in a very different way. Yeah, I there. There is science that can be applied to biodynamics, and I think all of us here at Troon are very interested in doing so. Um, you know, biodynamics came about in the 1920s, and it was from a basis of, you know, more almost like ancient Greek philosophy in terms of the power of observation. So before there was these scientific tools, the, you know, the, the ancient Greeks and um, and Romans had to really use their powers of observation keenly to try to discern things about the natural world and try to f- see patterns and try to make some sense of, of what they found themselves living in. And in the 1920s, when um, they were first kind of thinking all these this biodynamics up, they didn't have the tools we have today, but they did have very keen powers of observation and it seems like a lot of what they came upon, we are just now getting some scientific tools to be able to look at differently, and we're finding things where we look. So uh, in particular, I think microbiology is a great place to start showing the scientific validity of biodynamics in that a lot of the biodynamic preparations that we add um, both to the vineyard but also especially to the compost piles may seem strange, but 
when viewed through a microbial lens, what they're really doing is inoculating the compost pile with a wide variety of different, uh, different microbes. Um, all these different preparations that are done in different ways um, are, are absolutely adding this diversity and complexity to the compost piles, which is, is shown out in scientific research. There is fundamentally differences between organic compost and biodynamic compost that are made side by side. The only difference is being biodynamic preparations. The biodynamic compost has uh, statistically more and more diverse um, uh, microbes and microbial communities present than the organic compost sitting just you know feet away. So there is something to uh, biodynamics that works. I mean, everyone, everyone who practices it, just realize you can step foot on a biodynamic farm and people can just feel it. Um, but it could be that your powers of observation are picking up things that you might not be able to vocalize exactly what it is, but there's something there and science is just starting to learn uh, ways, or, or I guess are learning new tools to look at things in a different way and when we look at biodynamics, we are finding interesting things in doing so. So yes, I mean, we can approach biodynamics from a scientific mindset, which we do, and we try to um, understand as best we can what we're doing, and it's something that we change uh, constantly. We're constantly adding to what we know about our farm and the way we farm it. Um, our director of agriculture, Garrett, uh, refers to biodynamics as a practice. So the practice of biodynamics, similar to a yoga practice, for example, where it is something that you, you do consistently, and the more you do it, the more you kind of grow and change and learn and, and adapt and add to your practice. And that is something that we do um, both in our farm and um, in our cellar with biodynamics uh, year after year. Well, we can talk about this for hours, I know, because we have uh, something we do, uh, and we'll return. It's always fascinating to, to, to hear your thoughts on this, Nate, and, and to see the progress you've made with the wines here. So thank you for uh, joining us today, and uh, it was fun. Great. Thank you. We are happy to share this podcast with you from Troon Vineyard, a Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Winery in Oregon's Applegate Valley. We farm like the world depends on it and produce authentic, naturally crafted wines. We will be sharing these in-depth podcasts several times a month. To learn more, I encourage you to visit our website at trunevineyard.com and those of the Regenerative Organic Alliance at regenorganic.org and Demeter Biodynamics at demeter-usa.org. Thanks for sharing our voyage to regenerative agriculture with us.